The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is the third day of our summer seven-day session, the 12th of January 2019, and we're going to continue reading from Principles of Zen by Martin Batchelor. We'll take up where we left off, where Bachelor was talking about um, great faith, great courage, and great awakening. These three qualities that we're encouraged to cultivate in Zen practice. And uh, we'd already looked at, uh, at great faith and now are um, looking at great courage or determination. I'll just re repeat the, the paragraph that we read right at the end last time, since it's quite important. What kind of courage do we require in this modern world with its complexities and urgencies? We need the courage to live in the present and not in the past or in the future. We need the courage to break our habits and patterns of thought. We need to let go of our preferences, impulses and desires. We have such a tendency to be lost in our negative thoughts or our hopeful dreams, or to give in to despondency or laziness. When we do this, we are creating strong habits. How can we change this painful behaviour? We actually need great courage to stand firm when we are buffeted by recurring desires, depressive thoughts, negative resentments or beautiful daydreams. We must come back again and again to this moment and to the practice of being quiet and clear in awareness. Just a, just a comment or two on this paragraph. We need the courage to live in the present and not in the past or the future. The past and the future uh, may feel a lot less threatening to us than the present. Because the present's alive and so we unpredictable. Whereas the the, the past and the future are made out of our thoughts. So they don't, they, they're in a sense dead. And so we, we um, have a tendency to take refuge there in one or the other. It takes courage to live in the present, to face ourselves and to face others. We need the courage to break our habits and patterns of thought. Again, habits, even though they may cause us a lot of suffering and other people, um, they can feel, uh, because of their familiarity, they can feel like a refuge. And of course, our patterns of thought, again, are similar. They are the known and the familiar. She says, we have such a tendency to be lost in our negative thoughts or our hopeful dreams, or to give in to despondency or laziness. For some people the dominant thing will be anxiety, negative thoughts. For others uh, it may be fantasizing, getting caught up in, in the, the imagination. 
and because because we get get lost in these things, they they have um, control over us. But as soon as we start to uh, be able to uh, regard these things as products of the mind, then they no longer have such power over us. We can we can extricate ourselves from that that lostness. She asked the question, well, how do we change this painful behavior, these strong habits that we create? Well, one of the ways in which we, we change this is by substitution. We, we have um, habits of, of mind, of thought, that we, grooves, you could say, in the, in the mind, in the brain, that we fall into. And practice, having a practice, whether it's a breath or a koan, is, is uh, a substitute for the negative habits. We, we, we ingrain a, a different pattern into our minds. And we do this by coming in back again and again to the present moment. back to, we come back to awareness. It's an, and it's such an amazing thing actually, when we, when we um, consider it, the, the, the have the good karma to have discovered a practice that can, can break these ancient habits of ours. practice that can um, lead us from ignorance and unconsciousness to, to awareness and, and uh, composure. She goes on, there are two stories often used to demonstrate how our habit patterns limit us. Once there was a frog sitting peacefully by the side of a river. A scorpion came by and asked her urgently, I really need to get to the other side of this river. I can't swim. Can you please take me across? The frog was dubious. She felt the scorpion was going to sting her, but he promised her he would never do this as it would be senseless, as then both of them would die in the middle of the river and drown. So the frog, out of compassion, acquiesced. They started across the river, the scorpion on the back of the frog. Halfway across, the scorpion stung the frog and as they both went down, the frog asked, Why did you do it? And the scorpion replied, I could not help it. It is in my nature. And then Bachelor comments, How many times do we do this? We know something is not a good idea. We know we're going to be hurt. But out of habit, we carry on doing it. Only great courage can help us to break through these very ingrained habits. How often do we, we use this as an ex, kind of an, an excuse for our, our self-destructive or, or unkind behaviors? It's just the way I am. But we can have compassion for, for 
ourselves and others who who do this, who make this excuse. It means that um, the person doing this hasn't yet seen into the unreality of his or her thoughts. Haven't seen yet the way in which thoughts are entirely dependent on us to give them their power. we don't believe them, if we don't act on them, they are completely harmless. The second story is about an island inhabited by many monkeys. The islanders catch the monkeys by hanging coconuts with sweets inside them. The monkeys, attracted by the sweet smell, put a hand through a hole, the hole in the coconut and catch the sweets, but then cannot get the sweets or their fists out because the hole is too small. If a monkey lets go of the sweets, he can get his hand out and be free, but he wants the sweets and so he holds on and is then captured. It is the same with us. Something is enticing, so we hold on to it. Through the holding we might experience pain, but we cannot let go because we want it so much, or it seems so attractive. Again, we need great courage to look beyond the seduction and remember our intention to let go of suffering and to benefit ourselves and others. For these monkeys, it's like the the allure of the sweets is is greater than the the their apprehension of the situation, the reality of their, their situation. So want those sweets that they're willing to be um, imprisoned, captured. For that. The idea of the sweet is greater than the reality of this situation. There are um, other examples of this that are sometimes given um, where uh, a more intelligent animal uh, doesn't have the same, um, you could say, common sense as a less intelligent one. One of the examples sometimes given is of horses versus um, donkeys or asses. That a horse will, will allow itself to be ridden to death. It'll just keep going even though it's exhausted. It overrides, you could say, it's, it's, it overrides its instincts in that situation, its instinct for survival, and just serves the rider. And that's contrasted with a donkey or an ass, which um, if, it, if it is coming near to exhaustion, it just will stop and it won't go any further. It'll endure beatings, but it's not going to keep going. Another example is that of the difference between a bee and a fly. If a, if a, uh, a bee gets um, stuck behind um, a piece of glass of some kind or in a glass jar, it'll just keep throwing itself as that, at that glass because it can see the world out there and it keeps on just hurling itself against that solid wall of glass until it perishes. The fly, on the other hand, doesn't keep keep doing that to the point of death. It stops, accepts reality. Whereas the 
the the more intelligent bee has the has uh, maybe this is a <laughs> anthropomorphizing, but the bee thinks it should be able to get through that glass, and so it keeps on throwing itself against it. An idea gets in the way of common sense, of, 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 of coming to one's senses. Bachelor says, we need to great courage to look beyond the seduction and remember our intention to let go of suffering and to benefit ourselves and others. Look beyond the, the idea of, of about what it might be good or bad to what's actually the situation. Where is there suffering? And what is the cause of the suffering? She goes on, for example, we think Zen is a great idea and that meditation is beneficial, but time and again we will find that we have time for everything else but meditation. From a Zen perspective, great courage would remind us of our faith in our Buddha nature, of our vow to seek enlightenment for the benefit of all, and would help us to go beyond our limits. We might try to sit for 30 minutes instead of 10, and every morning instead of once a week. We might try to attend a week's retreat to see if we can do that. During my first three-month Zen retreat, I did not think I could cope and would often escape the schedule until Master Kusan noticed it and told me I had to bear beyond strength. To bear beyond strength. It's to bear beyond what we think uh, we can bear. To be willing to move into a place of, of great vulnerability. And after after Bachelor was told this, she she thought that if, if everyone else could do it, then maybe she should give it a try. And she says, um, would, within a month, I would be the first one to arrive. I'm assuming she means the first one to arrive in the zendo for each block of sitting. She discovered that she had strength beyond what she thought she had. Great courage will give us the impetus to go beyond our small habitual self and reach out to our wider potential for quietness and clarity. The third of these three qualities is great questioning. Great questioning is traditionally called great doubt, as in this Zen saying. Great doubt, great awakening. Little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. Um, there's a bit of a problem though with this word doubt in English because it can also mean vacillation or hesitation. In Zen, doubt means questioning or, or perplexity or, or even, and this applies to, um, especially to the breath or shikantaza, a sense of wonder A mind, a mind that is open.
looking, listening, If we want to awaken, we need to produce a great doubt or questioning in order to go beyond our usual concerns and anxieties, misconceptions and delusions. So this, this great questioning has the, the power to uh, take us beyond our habits. There is a paradox between great faith and great questioning. We need faith to anchor us and questioning to open us. With faith only, we might stagnate and become narrow-minded. With questioning only, we might become disturbed and agitated. These two qualities balance and support each other. And, and you could say also um, that, they, that they give rise to the third of these three qualities, the great, the great courage or great determination, in the sense that we have this faith in our Buddha nature, but at the same time we, we look at our lives and see that we don't act out of that Buddha nature. We act out of our, our fears and our desires and anger and all of that and so we we see this this um, contradiction between between our faith and the actual situation and that how would you call it, that, that non-alignment gives rise to the, the determination to close it, to close the gap between the two. The Buddha strongly emphasized questioning and knowledge born of direct experience. Some villagers once asked him whose teachings they should follow. He told them they should question and test any teachings or practices that were presented to them. If the practices helped them to become more kind and wise, they should continue to practice them. If the practices made them more selfish and aggressive, they should try something else. We need to question anything that is presented to us, even Zen. Um, this story she tells um, about the Buddha is, is, is known as the, the advice to the, the Kalamans, people from this particular village. Test, test the practice against your experience. In that, in that sutra, um, also the other other kind of criterion for um, testing practices was that it was recommended by the wise that that people you you respect people whose whose um, behavior you respect also recommend the practices and then test them also about against your own experience in Zen we are invited to see life as a question we are encouraged to open to the don't know mind and embrace the insecurity of uncertainty. This does not make us confused. On the contrary, it allows us to wonder at, the life, at life like a child and to find marvels in the most ordinary. This is not an intellectual inquiry. We need to be engaged with the whole of our being it is said that we have to question with the marrow of our bones and the pores of our body. Master Dogen, asking himself how the Buddha nature could be represented, thought that the only, only way it could be expressed was through the question, what is this? What is this? 
Why is there something rather than nothing? As, as Leibniz asked. She says, we need to be engaged with the whole of our being. Experiencing the breath with the whole of our being. Staying alert in this moment with the whole of our being. Questioning the koan with our 360 bones and our 84,000 hair follicles, as it says in, in Mumon's commentary. Here's what a, a 17th century Japanese Zen master um, Takasui instructs. You must doubt deeply again and again, asking yourself what the subject of hearing could be. So he's instructing his students on, on the koan, what is hearing? Pay no attention to the various illusory thoughts and ideas that may occur to you. Only doubt more and more deeply, gathering together in yourself all the strength that is in you, without aiming at anything or expecting anything in advance, without intending to be enlightened, and without even intending not to be enlightened. Become like a child within your own breast. Become like a child within your own breast. With, with the innocence of a child, dropping your preconceptions about things, your certainties. Bachelor goes on, Master Kusan used to say that we needed to question meditation itself. We had to be careful not to grasp at any states, good or bad, and to maintain a balance between quietness and clarity. This is a very important point, not to grasp at any states, good or bad. Um, these, especially the pleasant ones, can be very seductive. But they, they all pass. If it's a state, it passes. And therefore, it's futile to try and, and grasp at it or hold on to it. If we were too quiet, we might become dull. So we needed to in introduce more inquiry. Or if, doing, if you're doing shikantaza, <coughs> uh, you could say here, more alertness. If we were too focused on inquiry, we might become agitated and then would need um, to bring in more concentration. He said we needed to be like hens hatching eggs. The hen moves the eggs at the bottom of the pile, the ones which are cooler, to the top and then, then moves the top ones down to the bottom so that they all have an even temperature. We usually like to know just what to do and then do it. But in this way, meditation can become mechanical. Great inquiry or great doubt prevents this and keeps the practice fresh and lively. And in fact, that's, that's essential, that, that we keep the practice alive, that we not, that we not um, fall into, into just a kind of mechanical questioning, repeating of the, of the nub of the koan, but, but really engage. I've often given this image of the hens um, hatching eggs to people because this the, the sense of, of, of an active process of, of uh, trying different things.
meditation is not a technique. It's not something where you can just take a set of instructions, one to ten, and apply them, and then bingo, you're awakened. It's, it's, it's really more, in a sense, like an art, that even if you, you know all the technique, that's not enough. There has to be this sense of giving oneself to the process of, of, of moving into unknown territory. She continues, In Zen we are encouraged not to lose our beginner's mind, to be open and to avoid becoming too professional. For example, Master Zhao Zhou, after being a revered teacher for many years, left his temple to travel on his own as a simple monk. His intention was to continue his training by learning from anyone he met whether it was a five-year-old child or an illiterate farmer. Master Zhao Zhou was one of the great Chinese masters who contributed much to the development and characteristics of Zen in China. He had a long and fruitful life and died at the age of 120. He is well known for his enigmatic answers to the various convoluted questions of his many disciples. For example, a monk asked Zhao Zhou, the myriad things return to the one. Where does the one return to? Zhao Zhou answered, When I was in Qingzhou, I made a cloth shirt. It weighed seven pounds. So what is, is Zhao Zhou saying here? Why does he answer this very um, deeply philosophical question? The myriad things return to the one. Where does the one return to? He answers by talking about some shirt he made. Zhao Zhou, that's Joshua in, in Japanese, knew from much experience that we have to answer these kinds of questions for ourselves. His, his response is a response that, that goads the, the questioner in the sense of just uh, pushing him in the direction of more questioning. He has to question for himself and find the answer for himself. There's no other way. I'm going to um, pause in this text now and just turn to another one um, for the rest of the, this talk. Um, this is um, a little book called uh, The Faith to Doubt, Glimpses of Buddhist Uncertainty. And it's by Stephen Batchelor, uh, Martin's husband. And in it, there's a whole chapter just on this topic of questioning. And I'd like to just read a few passages uh, from the chapter and comment on them. It is almost it is most uncanny that we are able to ask questions. For to question means to acknowledge that we do not know something. But it is more than an acknowledgement. It includes a yearning to confront an unknown and illuminate it through understanding. Questioning is a quest. It takes the first step into the dark and proceeds to build a path from ignorance to clarity, from bewilderment to recognition from estrangement to intimacy. It creates the initial fissure in the veil of the unknown. It forms an opening through which the light of wisdom is able to shine and penetrate. Questioning simultaneously reveals our limitations and our urge to go beyond them. 
Questioning simultaneously reveals our limitations and our urge to go beyond them. Because of this dual nature of questioning, that we can have very ambivalent feelings about it. Because if we, if we sincerely question, we, we don't know where that questioning will take us. And that can be, that can be very scary because it means in a sense, in a certain sense, relinquishing control of the process. And sometimes people will, their, their questioning will intensify and they'll find that quite scary and they kind of pull back from the edge. And they may do that um, many times. In other words, with this, with this um, urge to go beyond our limitations, often it, it comes with um, an, an, an opposite urge to um, resist the questioning, to, to stay in the familiar and the known. And it's one of the things that we find that at times that we may have to struggle with in our practice. Especially, we'd say, if the questioning in us is is uh, stronger than than our faith, and it may be that we need to to work on um, nourishing that faith more in order to be able to to go into that place of um, of facing the unknown, the darkness. Uh, Stephen Batchelor then goes on to talk about there being two distinct kinds of questioning. Um, the, the common type, which um, is to do with problem solving, and then another type, which is mu much less um, recognized in our present culture. This other type, to describe this, he quotes um, the philosopher Heidegger, comparing these, these two ty types of questioning. And this is from a talk he gave in 1955. Calculative thinking computes. It computes ever new, ever more promising, and at the same time more economical possibilities. Calculative thinking races from one prospect to the next. Calculative thinking never stops, never collects itself. Calculative thinking is not meditative thinking, not thinking which contemplates the meaning that reigns in everything there is. And of course, this, it's this is less recognized kind of, of questioning that is required When in doing spiritual work, this is meditative thinking. Later on, um, Stephen Batchelor says, a calculative attitude can serve us in our dealings with the practical concerns of the everyday, but can only mislead us if we imply its methods to unravel the deeper riddles of life. Calculation can solve our problems, but is helpful, helpless <coughs> in penetrating our mysteries. When confronting the mysterious, we cannot rely upon any logical or technical means to gain insight. For as soon as we attempt to figure out a mystery, it ceases to be such and becomes a mere problem. The more pervasive is calculation in our lives, the more is the mysterious banished. And as the sense of life's mystery becomes dimmer and more remote, 
so our ability to meditate diminishes to the point where meditation is exiled to the very margins of existence. But the mysterious lies at the heart of our lives, not at the periphery. And its presence is only felt to the extent that a meditative attitude still lives within us. And like a problem, a mystery can never be solved. A mystery can only be penetrated. A problem once solved ceases to be a problem. But the penetration of a mystery does not make it any less mysterious. The more intimate one is with a mystery, the greater shines the aura of its secret. The intensification of a mystery leads not to frustration, as does the increasing of a problem, but to release. Now, this is one of the one of the reasons why um, we can come back to the same um, question, the same koan, and even though we have had some insight into it, keep working on it and um, keep keep delving into it. Actually, in Korea usually the uh, practitioners there are assigned one koan which we work, they work on their whole lives deepening so it's a, it's a it's a process of of deepening the mystery of going deeper into it continues to, to contrast this um, calculative way of, of, um, of questioning with the meditative way. He says, uh, symptomatic of the prevailing obsession with calculation, it is considered as a technique, as a systematic application of a preconceived series of ideas. But although guidelines can be given, Ultimately, there is no how to meditation. Certain exercises and skills may be more conducive to meditation than others, but in the end, a meditative attitude is not something we can ever acquire. And the reason for this is that um, it's something that we already have. A meditative attitude is nothing new or alien. It dwells deeply within us all, except now it is a field which increasingly lies fallow and ignored. It is not something we have to bring from elsewhere and introduce into our lives. It is already present in an embryonic and sporadic way. It may come to us unexpectedly in glimmers and hints. It is vaguely recognized as a distant, barely known possibility which may, may nag at us like the fragments of a dream that refuse to be recollected, yet refuse to leave us alone. We need to recognize this fragile attitude and then care for it and nurture it as we would a child or a seedling. seedling. Um, that's exactly what the practice allows us to do. To, to It allows us to to expose, reveal this, this way of being in the world. This is open, attentive, quiet way of being. He says, meditation does not add anything to life. It recovers what has been lost. It is a growing awareness of what our existence is saying to and asking of us. It is something fundamental that has become obscured by our infatuation with a separate ego and its endless calculations and melodramas. It's an endless efforts to, to get ahead, to shore ourselves up, to be safe and protected 
defended. The practice of meditation is to allow this attitude to shine through, to acquaint ourselves both slowly and abruptly with what is both our origin and our combination. And there's this real sense when we when we do have some little glimmer of insight that um, of its of its ordinariness and of of um, coming coming home, not to something not something um, dramatic and and exotic, but very straightforward. Something that was there all along, and we just missed it. He says, the practice of meditation is a process of attrition, of losing. The mind has a seemingly infinite capacity for chatter, and there's no instant or easy cure for this proliferation of thoughts and emotions. Only the patient continuity of meditation, what the Chinese master Xu Yun called a long, enduring mind, can finally wear it down. We have to remind ourselves over and over again uh, and again about this, about this need. Patient continuity, a long enduring mind, and having a long view of the process. This process is echoed in Lao Tzu's words. What is of all things most yielding can overwhelm that which is of all things is most hard. And of course, this is um, a way of talking about water wearing away rock. Water is the most yielding, rock the most unyielding. And yet this water can wear away, drop by drop, can wear away the rock. The patient, unhurried, yet continuous flow of water can wear down even the most resistant and stubborn rock. The patient, unhurried, yet continuous. This is how we need to practice. Whatever the conditions of the mind are at any given moment, when the practice feels completely tasteless and dry, or when it's, when it's fascinating and exciting, whatever it is, this patient, continuous attention we apply. Meditation is closer to the valleys than the peaks. A meditative attitude is not preoccupied with key peak experiences, those exhilarating heights of spiritual experience that leave the valleys and plains far below. Like water, it is content with the places that all people disdain. That's another quote from Lao Tzu. The rarefied and brilliant atmosphere of the peaks may uplift and inspire us, but we cannot live there long. Um, Joshi Sazaki Roshi used to say, um, there, there are no uh, restaurants or restrooms on the top of mountains. You think of the snowy peaks of the Himalayas. It's, nobody lives right on those peaks. It's, it's impossible to live there. The rarefied and brilliant atmosphere of the peaks may uplift and inspire us, but we cannot live there long. Living things do not grow on the peaks. They need the fertile soil of the valley. For meditation to be fertile, it too needs to stay close to the ground, to follow the humble paths along the valleys amidst the myriad details of daily life. And that, that fertile soil 
is made fertile by our um, what we might think of as as our trash. That's what that that's what can become compost for our for our unfolding, our growth. Again, we need to remind ourselves of that when we we're struggling with things, with our, with our habits, with our, our negativities. To 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 recognize the energy that is found in these things, and and energy can be transformed. Our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to return. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org dot org dot nz